So one of the things that I like to do is I like to figure out um, why David picks particular songs he does. Um, and I've, I've learned over the, um, over the months as I've watched him trying to figure out why did this song follow this song, I realize it's not haphazard. Like he's not just scooping together his favorite songs, but he actually has a logic behind it and to try and figure it out is, is pretty fun because you realize uh, there's, there's design behind it. And um, there's also design behind um, the choosing of the, the reading of the scripture. It's not just a reading of the scripture, but it's a, a scripture reading in, in this particular case, Psalm 130, that connects to this new series that we're doing um, out of Hebrews chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to Hebrews chapter 11. But Psalm 130 is something that plays into that and actually um, really talks about the same spirit. Um, if you were reading or listening carefully, um, the psalm comes out of a, a keen awareness of the brokenness and the, the sin-damaged um, dominion of this, this world. That is that life is, is difficult here, um, which is why it opens up out of the depths, I call to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my cry. Let your ears be attentive to my pleas for mercy. Like you can tell, the psalmist uh, knows guilt, he knows sin, he knows struggle, and out of it he's calling on the Lord, and he acknowledges that the Lord is one who forgives, that the Lord is merciful, that the Lord is abounding in steadfast love. And you know what? My, my favorite word or phrase in the middle of that psalm, and this connects to Hebrews 11, this is the logic of it, um, it maybe not my favorite phrase, but it's one of them, is in the middle there he says, my soul waits for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. Like in his word I hope. In the midst of a sin-damaged world, in his word I place my hope. And I believe that word um, that he's talking about is the word of promise. That is, God has promised because he's a God of love and a God of goodness and a God of mercy. He promised in the Old Testament to, to bless his people, to redeem his people, to restore his people, and to make right what is so wrong with this place. And, and the Old Testament um, believers, they held this hope almost like a, you can picture a man holding on to a life preserver in a dark and stormy sea. They just hold on to this word of hope. Um, about God's coming redemption. And, and, of course, the psalm ends with this call to Israel. Israel, hope in the Lord, for the Lord will redeem. Future tense, he's going to make good on his promise. He's going to make true on his word. And that is Psalm 30. And, of course, we just read um, Hebrews chapter 11, which talks about um, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The realization that, that God is going to make uh, good on what he said he was going to do in making things right in this world, um, which is the hope of our, our Christian faith. Now, um, and that's really what we're going to be talking about over the course of the next, um, well, into the beginning of August, is looking at each of the, the characters of, of Hebrews 11. If you're not familiar with it, I encourage you to take it home and, and read it for yourself. It talks about Abel and Enoch and Noah and kind of goes right through the Old Testament characters. It's a great way to get, a, um, get to know your Old Testament a little bit. Uh, but if I could just reflect on how this connects to last week, if you were here last week, uh, you know that our police chief, Joe Alio, spoke to us, and I'm just speaking for myself, but I found it extremely encouraging, both personally and just uh, communally, um, to know that we have a, a man who's, who's a committed Christian, who's, um, who's in a place of influence and position in our city, you know, just... I don't know. I just I'm glad to see light shining um, in our place uh, in, in in our city. But he he talked last week about 
You know, how, how do you, and he, he connected it with former messages, he, he said, how, how, do you, how do you pour yourself out for Christ as a Christian? How, how do you um, run the race flat out? And he answered the question with his message, which was essentially this, remember, right? Remember, look back. And remember that at one time you were the Barabbas and that Jesus came to the prison cell and he opened it and saying, said to us, you are free because I'm substituting myself and I will be condemned in your place. And so the, kind of the, the, the point of the message is if you feel like life is flat, if you feel like you don't have spiritual energy to pour yourself out for Christ, then the key is to remember, go back to what God has done for you and you will find the sails of your heart um, filled with fresh energy. And um, I can't think of a better compliment to what we're going to be talking about this morning in the, in the weeks ahead. Because what Joe encouraged us to do is what you might think of as retrospective faith. That is, we look back and we gain strength by looking at what God has done for us at the cross of Jesus Christ. Hebrews turns us in the other direction and also teaches us that tremendous strength and motivation comes not from the past, but the future. That whole idea of faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And then it goes through a whole line of characters who, who, who were not, not only persevered in their faith, but they were fruitful and productive. They built ships. They led people out of Egypt. They, they left home. They offered up sacrifices. That is that faith um, that is forward-looking or prospective faith um, is as a great source of Christian living. So both of those are sources. And I know I've taught this before, so for many of you, this is not new, but that's, that's where, those are the two sources where we go to for strength, to live out the Christian life and find the strength to live, if you will, flat out. That's where we find um, our, our motivation, past and future. And Hebrews moves us in the direction of the future, of realizing um, what God has promised and focusing our, our thoughts and our hearts there. Now, I want to give you a little, uh, just a like, sneak peek on kind of the why behind the message. You know, it's really easy to be complacent. It's easy to be um, indifferent as a Christian. It's, it's easy to come week in and week out and, and sing songs about Christ and, and at the end of the day live a rather complacent, lazy, cold, um, unproductive, unfruitful Christian life. Um, we live in a very affluent society, which makes laziness all the more um, possible and probable. So part of the design or the prayer behind this is just to stir up God's people. Um, that in our faith, both looking back and looking forward, uh, we will find uh, fresh energy to run the race that Christ has set before us uh, with faithfulness and productivity. So with that said, I, I want to just, this morning really is just laying a foundation. It's, um, it's, it's setting Hebrews 11 within the context of the whole book. And I, I want to do that in, in, in three ways. Um, I, I want to uh, kind of uh, draw your attention to, one, the star attraction of the book. Two, the central danger to our Christian faith, which is also in the book. And then last, the urgent need that we have right here right now in, in our generation. So I want to start by the central star of the book. And if, if you can believe this, I'm going to actually kind of preach the message of the book in, in about five minutes, the whole book, right? Star attraction. What's the star attraction to this book called Hebrews, which is a, a letter that was written in the first century to a group of Christians, probably Jewish Christians. 
Well, I think you can anticipate the answer. Uh, I, I bet our Sunday school kids could tell us the answer is, you know, um, the old Sunday school answer. Well, what is the most important, most valuable? Um, what is uh, um, to be desired more than much fine gold and sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb? And what's the, to be supreme in your life? And the Sunday school kids who have been in Sunday school naturally say, yeah, right, it's Jesus, that's right. And you're like, yes, you got it right. Whenever there's a superlative, like a, like a most important, most valuable, most authoritative, the answer should be, of course, of course, Jesus. But if you, you press a, a Sunday school kid, well, so, so why? Why Jesus? Why is he supremely valuable? Why is he supremely desirable? Well, then they kind of peter out. It's like, well, he's Jesus. Like, Jesus is great because he's Jesus. Well, the book of Hebrews, in a manner of speaking, answers the question, like, why is Jesus incomparable? Why, why is he supreme? Why have people for 2,000 years gathered around him as the supreme glorious center of their faith? And Hebrews provides the answer for us. So let me just kind of enlist fashion for sake of time, uh, draw out, if you will, the backbone of the book. And I we're not going to get deep into each one. Just going to simply alert you to this. You're going to be able to sense, wow, that's, that's what the book is about. Well, the star attraction, the incomparable Christ. One reason that Jesus is incomparable, because Jesus is the supreme revelation of God. That's how the book opens up. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. He's saying that's how he used to speak to us through the Old Testament. But in these last days... He has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Now, that word nature, I want you to underline because I'm going to come back to it in about 10 minutes. But the idea is that in former times, God spoke to us through messengers of his word people who bore his word, the prophets. But he goes on to say, but in these last days, God has spoken to to us in the person of his son. That is, Jesus isn't the bearer of the message only. He actually is the message. Like, this is who God is. This is the supreme, definitive, the exact imprint of who God is. That's, That's why he's supreme. He's superior to former revelation. That's one reason. Why is Jesus incomparable? You move to chapter 1, verse 4, because Jesus is far greater than angels. Love angels, powerful, shows about angels, right? Glorious, beautiful creatures. And yet, he says, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So the, 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 the supreme revelation of God, greater than angels, he goes on in chapter 3 to, to, to answer the question, why Jesus is incomparable because Jesus is far better than Moses. You know, as great as Moses was, as powerful and formidable of a prophet as he was to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Um, Hebrews insists that Jesus is far better, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has, more honor than the house itself, that is, the creator is greater than what he creates, is the idea. So why is Jesus incomparable? Four, because Jesus is a greater priest, the book will argue. 
and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who would obey him, um, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So he is uh, a, the, the greatest of all pre, uh, priests, able to do what no one else is able to do. Why is Jesus incomparable? The book goes on to say because Jesus offers a better covenant. That is a relationship with God that has been covered, paid for, and cannot be broken. For the law made nothing perfect. That's the old covenant is what the law represents. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better relationship or covenant. So Jesus um, offers a better relationship on firmer ground than the old covenant. And six, and I could go on, this will be the last one I'm going to reference, but because Jesus is a greater sacrifice. Why incomparable? Because he's the greater sacrifice. Verse 12, chapter 9, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. That is, once for all, as we sang a few minutes ago, he paid for it, and it's done. The supreme, superior sacrifice. So you you take those things, you know, just those six. The book is saying, why, why is Jesus incomparable? Well, as, as great as Old Testament revelation is, as great as angels are, as great as Moses is, as great as the sacrifices at the temple were, as great as the priests at the temple were, and as great as the covenant that was tied to the Ten Commandments, Jesus is far greater. That's the point of the book, is to just hold him up so that we will see, once again, this is why the Sunday school answer is always correct. Christ, um, supreme, uncomparable, um, priceless. Now, if you've come to Parkway before, this is, this is quite honestly nothing new to you. Uh, you've heard this before. And if you go to a Christ-centered, you've been to a Christ-centered church somewhere else in the community, then my guess is you've heard it there too. But here's the thing. There's a difference between knowing it, saying it, and it being the truth in your life, right? Like, I've, I've just been a student of my own heart over the years and a, a student of what, like, faith is. And I realize that it's really easy for our hearts to trick us into thinking we believe something that we really don't. Or to put it differently, to, to think that we treasure Christ or, or that he really is um, the star attraction in our hearts when in fact what we really prize and what we really treasure is something different. That is the heart is saying one thing but it's, it's reality is another thing. And uh, This was impressed upon me um, a number of years ago in a kind of a, a vivid way when my daughter was five, Allie was five, and Deanna was pregnant with um, our third. And then the, the point of this particular memory um, uh, we did not know the gender of our third born. And so we asked my daughter, says, Allie, what do you hope it's going to be? A boy or a girl? Do you want a baby brother or a baby sister? And she said, and I corroborated this with you to make sure that this story, all my stories are in fact true, right? It was a preacherly exaggeration. But anyway, she said, no, I, I, don't, I don't care. She said, I don't care if it's a boy or girl, brother or sister. She didn't care. That's what she said. So she went to the ultrasound with us, five years old, and they put the jelly on the belly, right? 
And uh, we're watching it, and the technician says, well, do you want to know what you're having? And we're like, yeah, want to know. We want to pick a name before the date. And uh, she said, well, you're going to have a, a baby brother. And at that, our daughter Allie burst into tears. <laughs> Seriously. I said, she went from, I don't care, brother, sister, it doesn't matter to me, to you're going to have a baby brother. And it's like, you know, in that moment, realized that really what she said really wasn't true of, of what she was feeling. She wanted a baby sister. And in that moment, she was massively disappointed, despite the fact that she said the opposite. Now, she will tell you now, just to clear her, um, she will say, I'm glad I'm the only daughter. I am the princess of the family, and I have no, 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 no competitors whatsoever. And she loves her place. She's glad at this point that she's the only daughter. But at that moment, what she treasured really was a sister, and what she was saying was that she didn't care. And it's, we easily do the same thing. If, if that we can say it, we can say, man, Christ is the first in my life. But meanwhile, there's something that you're secretly treasuring buried beneath that really has captured your heart and your soul. It's the treasure of your life. And, and so we can say it, but that doesn't make it true. And which is why it's really important for us to take time, moments, to, to just be really honest with the Lord and really honest with ourselves. It's like, is he really, at a heart level, um, the star of the show in my life? No? Or am I just saying that? Uh, like I said, we, you know, we can sing Jesus paid it all, all day long, every day, every week, and every month, but that doesn't mean that that truth is true for you. And, uh, you know, and to come to the realization, if he's not the star of the show, that something probably is, 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 is wrong in here as, from a Christian perspective. Because not only Hebrews, but the entire New Testament, and I think in a shadowy way in the Old Testament, says this is the supreme one. This is the prize. Um, he is the beginning, the middle, and the end of salvation. He's the cause, he's the means, and he's the goal of salvation. He's not just someone who offers you salvation separate from himself. He actually is our salvation. To know him is to know life. To know him is to know love. And to know him is to know joy. To know him is to know what it means to live. And that's why he's the star of the show. He's supposed to be star of the show. People will wake up someday we're told in the Gospel of Matthew. When, you know, the day comes in which we stand before the Lord, and, and the Lord will say, you know, I, I didn't know you. Even though you say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these great things in your name? The fact of the matter is they didn't know him. There was no prizing, treasuring. He was not the star of their show. So I, I think that's something important for us as, as believers to be honest with about, uh, about. like kind of like Joe Alio said last week. It's like everybody has to decide what to do with Jesus at a very heart level. Um, even people who have sat in, in a church for 10 years, maybe going through the motions or going through the tradition or superficially relating to him, and he's not the star of the show. Maybe this morning, this might be one of those places that just is a call back, you know, to your first love. That's the... That's the that's the star attraction of Hebrews. And each of the figures, Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Moses, in some way anticipated and looked forward to with great hope the star of the show coming. 
That's part one, star of the show. Now, why is that important? Because there's a great danger for God's people, and it is a danger that every generation has faced, including, and maybe especially, ours. And that danger is this retreat from Christ. Now, it's highly uh, probable, I think, that the book was written, as I said at the beginning, to a, a group of Jewish Christians. That is, they had come to recognize Jesus as their Messiah. They had come to recognize that Jesus was the sacrifice for sin, not what was happening in the temple. They came to recognize that he is the supreme priest who offered himself on the altar for our sake, and they trusted in him. But for whatever reason, perhaps external pressure, hostility, growing uh, persecution, uh, there is a temptation to retreat, to go back to what was comfortable, perhaps go back to their Jewish faith and going back to the temple, back to the priest, back to the old way, back to the law. And so the, the writer is saying, listen, you can't, you can't do that. You can't, you can't let go of the, of the you know, life preserver in the middle of a stormy, dark ocean. You just can't let go of him. He's the star of the show. That's why he's like lifting him up. Over and over and over in all these different ways. You can't let go. And you sense that. Again, if you read carefully the book all the way through, you realize he basically keeps coming back to don't ever let go. Don't ever let go. Um, in any way, from, the, from a soft neglect to a hardcore rejection, do not let go. Here are just a, a sampling of this danger that you can sense when he says in chapter 2, how shall we escape if we neglect, and that's a soft word, just neglect, not paying attention to um, such a great salvation, again, great salvation with Jesus at the center of it. How shall we escape? We can't neglect it. Don't neglect it. Later in this chapter, I believe he says, and don't drift away, which is kind of a, a subtle, just letting go. Verse 14, here's kind of in a positive encouragement form. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. In other words, don't let go. Verse 35 of chapter 10, therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance. In other words, you're going to need to make it to the end. Hold on to Christ to the end as the star of your show. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. The idea being... Receiving what is promised requires endurance and faith to the very end. Or chapter 10, verse 39. This is right before chapter 11. But we are not of those who shrink back or retreat and are destroyed. Destroyed, shrink back. That means it's a dangerous thing to retreat from Christ. Um, but of those who have faith and pres uh, preserve their, their, their souls. So here you have is like, do not neglect, don't throw it away, don't retreat, don't shrink back from Christ. Like, keep him at the center of your life, the highest point of your life. Keep him as the star of your show, right? The beginning, the middle, and the end, the cause, the means, and the goal of, of, of your life and of your salvation. Because it's that important. Uh, eternity is... is uh, is at stake in this, holding on to and not shrinking back. Now, as I said, I, that's been a danger of every generation, and for different reasons, because times are different, cultures are different. I, I personally uh, feel this probably more from a father perspective than anything else. I, I see, and you see it too, and you feel it um, based upon things that are going on in our, our culture um, I feel a growing sense of hostility and pressure 
for those who would be devout in their allegiance and loyalty to Jesus and his word. It is going to be increasingly unpopular to be truly Christian, um, sold out. Um, We will face uh, relational uh, isolation, um, social condemnation because of the views we hold in connection with who Christ is. It, it, right? It's, that's true. I mean, we. In saying what I'm about to say, I can easily tip things upside down and give the wrong impression, and I don't want to do that. So hopefully, I can tip it back right side up so you get the right impression. But things that were thought unimaginable when I was a kid are, 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 are you know, just happening, right? Like, I can be a junior high boy and declare myself a girl and walk into a girl's restroom. What junior high boy wouldn't want to do that for a day? Or I can be a guy, proclaim myself a girl, and become mother, or she's not mother, but woman of the year. And it's just like, wow. Uh, and I don't say that to dehumanize uh, anyone who struggles with or has made wrong decisions. I mean... We all share fallen humanity. We all share the image of the invisible God, and therefore every life, no matter how twisted, is still uh, still worth something to God. And therefore worth something to us. But when we live in a place where what was once dark is considered light and what was once thought light is now considered dark, you just realize the pressure, outward pressure, will be to abandon um, Christianity as it is biblically revealed. And that, I was just like, oh man, are, 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 the kids of my, are, are my kids faith? And your kids faith? And it's not just them. It's, I mean, it's us too. You, you feel the, the pressure of it. And um, Joe brought it up last week. It's, it's, if you talk about Jesus, most people don't have a big deal with it, but as soon as you narrow the point, as he says, and you talk about the exclusivity of Jesus, like that Jesus actually said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me, that's pretty exclusive, well, then you find yourself in a, in a, in a position where um, you are notoriously unpopular for your views. So given the pressure, is it not a temptation for our kids to say, no, nope, I'm going to back away. I'm going to go soft on the Jesus thing rather than the, the pervasive star of my show. Like all of my life and all of its aspects need to be surrendered to him as my highest prize. Uh, I, I feel that. I, I think it's a, we're in danger of that because of external pressures. I, I think you look around, and, and I don't know what your perspective on Christianity is in, in modern America, but it seems like, and again, my, my perspective can be, is perhaps flawed. Um, it seems like some people treat Jesus a bit more like a, like a Christmas ornament, like like, I have my life, I have my children, I have my wife's career, and, and, I, and I need Jesus on it because it just adds a little extra bling, you know? Uh, or the, 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 you have most everything you need in life, you're kind of feeling mostly successful, but still something's missing, so you think maybe I'll add Jesus in as an additive, and maybe that will help round out. And you realize that's, that's, that really isn't Christian. That's, that's like Christian superficially dressed up, Right? Not Christian at the core that says, listen, uh, I, I was a sinner saved by grace, by the blood of Christ, and therefore he is indeed my all in all. That's a, that, that's a, that I think that we're in, we're, we're in those days of danger. Um, and I, so, I said, I, I told you I wanted to 
turn it right side up because I don't want to make this an ethical uh, center. Part of this, of, of never letting go and never allowing anything to st- displace Jesus as the center, uh, is, is, is mission, right? I mean, the world needs to know that no matter how screwed up you are, no matter how much you've tried to find identity in the wrong things, that there still is a God who loves you, a God who changes you, a God who redeems you, a God who died on the cross for you. And what he did for me as a sinful, twisted person, he can do for you. And that only happens when he stays the center and the supreme one in our lives, the star of the show, right? Same dangers face us today. Um, of us in here, and maybe some of us even have felt like you've retreated, um, backed away, shrunk back from, or maybe it's just simply neglect. You've neglected the center of your life. Today's the day to hear God's voice and say, I don't want that to be the case anymore. And then third, the great need. We talked about the star of the show. That's the, the, the center of the book, our, and why he's the central hope. Um, the great danger that the book addresses, shrinking back, retreating, or what older school people called apostasy. Um, and the urgent need, of course, uh, is the opening lines of our text. Um, and this is, again, the introduction or the foundation of our, our, our series. The urgent need is an assured faith slash hope. hope. Faith is just really... I mean, if it's not leaning back to the cross, it's leaning forward to the future on the promises of God. And he says here, um, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. If you remember earlier in this message about 10 minutes ago, I said I want you to remember the word nature in chapter 1. That Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God. That is the substance of God. Um, who he really is. That is the same word used in the original here for faith is the assurance or the substance or the reality of what we hope for. Um, and I found that to be insightful because I think what he's saying is to us, faith that God gives us, and at the same time we mysteriously exercise, um, faith is the assurance or it is a taste of the substance of what we're hoping for. It's like, like a foretaste. And that's where the conviction and the persuasion comes from, is that by way of God's Spirit coming to us through the Word, um, we get a foretaste of what's ahead. I mean, and, and of course, the, the book of Hebrews talks about having a taste of the kingdom and the powers to come. In other words, we're given a taste of that. And that's where the assurance and that's where the conviction comes from, is this sense of, I have tasted the substance of what's coming, of what's promised. And when one has tasted of the substance of what's coming, there is a sense of conviction and persuasion that is powerful in a person's life. Um, When you know something to actually, actually be true, to know that, you know, that it's not a figment of our imagination, the resurrection. It's, it's, it's not a legend. It's not a myth. It's like, it's a reality. And to, 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 to come to the conviction that, that it's, it's real, 
the resurrection is real and and a place without death and without stain and without suffering is, is real. And to know that there is a love without regret is real. And to know that there is a place where um, the dwelling place of God will be the, with men and they will be his people. We will see him as he is. That that's, that's, that's it's, it's real. It's, it's more real than the breath in our lungs and more real than this stool upon which, you know, my Bible rests. It's more real than the chair in which you sit. It's more real than this building. It is so real, and it's going to happen. And, and even in these moments in worship, we get a little bit of taste of, that's what God's love is like. Like, he loves me that much. Well, just imagine what it'll be like when the tsunami of the new creation washes over, and you're like, oh, my gosh. You get a little taste of it now, but, but that's, that's, that's the forward-looking hope, and that unleashes a person's life. It creates productivity. It creates a, a desire to pour oneself out. It creates a, a desire to run flat out because we know what's coming. I was trying to think of an illustration of like how that works because we all know that hope is powerful. I mean, hope is what keeps people... Um, doing things for years. Uh, even if it's a false hope, it's powerful. Only ours is not a false hope. It's a, it's a very real and uh, hope that's been prophesied for thousands of years. But I was thinking, what, is that, what does that look like to, you know, to have a little bit of a foretaste maybe and how that creates an assurance and then how that moves you? And the, the best thing that I could think of was um, uh, how long it took me to talk my wife into hiking Half Dome with me. For, for years, I tried to um, talk her into it, you know? And, and, and for years, her response was kind of the same, just kind of like, really? Um, you want to hike up 5,000 feet, 18 miles round trip to climb a rock? You know, most people that, that hear that, it's like, yeah, that's exactly what I'm thinking too. Why in the heck would you want to climb a rock 18 miles and just completely destroy your body, right? What, what I tried to do is I tried to, tried to create a description of like, but this is what you'll experience, right? Like you go up the mist trail and there's misty forests and there's cathedral-like granite rocks on your left and on your right. And you go through a beautiful valley and then there are these vistas that you get to see all of these canyons. And then after you go up the scary cables, which scares the bejeebies out of pretty much anybody does it, so you, got, you get to the top and then, then it's like... It's like you're standing on the precipice of heaven itself, you know? And I'm like, I, 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 for, 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 for months I was just trying, trying to drive home the descriptions, right? It's like, you, you just got to taste it, right? With my words, and I'm not exact, I'm not a wordsmith, I'm not a poet, but I did my best to try and communicate the experience with the words. And finally, after beating her down for years, she finally consented. And, and, and she went, you know? Although I will say, big mistake, she went on YouTube and looked at, you know, climbing these cables thing, and just, she was a no after that, which restarted the whole process again. <laughs> but there's the Misty Forest, and there's Vernal Falls, and there's the cathedrals, and there's the Vada Falls, and valleys, and the precipice of heaven, you know. <laughs> so I said she finally consented, and we went up the Misty Falls. Of course, there's a drought, so there was no mist, and this... <laughs> There were no Vernal Falls. It was like a little tiny creek, and um, we went through the big valley, and I thought she was going to peter out at the cables, and she didn't. She just smoked right on up, I th you know, because she was afraid of them, and she got to the top, and wow. 
And I know she thought it was a wow, not only because she said so, but because she's going back up again. I mean, see, there's hope for people like you who think, I ain't going to go 18 miles round trip. But just see, the, the, like, point. There's so much description. Like God has said, listen. No eye has seen and no ear has heard what I have in store for you, which I bought for you personally at the cost of my own life. It's unimaginable. You can't even begin to dream, and it's real. It's held out for you. You'll see my face. You will not be in pain any longer. Death will be an extinct word. We'll be able to relate without pressures of time or worry or suspicion or misunderstanding or judgment. And we'll have forever to do it. And the place that I have in store for you is off the charts. Everything that you know right now and are experiencing right now, what you think is awesome, is nothing but moldy crumbs compared to what I have for you. Do you trust that it's true? There it is, the descriptions. Hope is fed upon words. Hope is fed upon descriptions of what God has planned for us and is made available through Jesus Christ. And as we feed our souls, that hope is, 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 is grown stronger. And we find ourselves wanting and longing and running. And it produces a massive shift and change in our lives. And that's honestly, bottom of my heart, that's what I want for me. I want my hope to be intensified. I want to taste the shores of resurrection. I want to taste the face of God. And I want to go out like John Wesley did, preaching in his 80s. Of course, I'll probably have dementia and not be able to do it. But you know what I'm saying? You're just bold all the way through because you know what? The best is yet to come, and it's not in this life. I hope you'll respond this morning and not leave without a personal response um, to the Lord. You don't answer to me, you just answer to him. So if something in this message provoked you or um, stimulated you to think, you know, i got to rethink this, I I hope you'll do that this morning. That's what this moment is about, is, is hearing the voice of the Lord saying, listen, I am your hope. And this is his voice speaking to you. In these moments, oh God, I pray that you... Stir up your church, protect your church, that you would make Christ the supreme prize of your church, that we would be people who do not live for ourselves or for our own private and selfish pleasure, but that we live our lives um, taking pleasure in the one who gave his life for us, who is the beginning, the middle, and the end of our salvation. Whatever narrow perspective we may have on who Jesus is or how much we may have diminished him and brought him down into our level so that he no longer is our majestic center. I pray that you break, um, or should I say, you, you, you drop the scales from our eyes, eliminate the fog, and allow us to see him for everything that he is. In Christ's name, amen.